Welcome to the first Comma Press podcast in association with Manchester Metropolitan University and People's History Museum. This is a series of conversations which Comma has convened uh, around a, a book and a project that we uh, published in 2017 called Protests, Stories of Resistance. The idea with this book was to invite writers and historians and activists to enter into a series of conversations and writing challenges, if you like, with the aim of reimagining particular moments of protest history. Um, so today, for the first podcast, uh, we're very, very lucky to have uh, the author, Juliet Jakes, uh, sociologist uh, Dr. M. Temple Malt and the poet, writer and activist Louise uh, Walwyn here with us to talk about one particular protest, which was the protest around Section 28 uh, in 1988. Juliet wrote the story, uh, Never Going Underground, uh, and a number of people uh, consulted and helped uh, Juliet with, with the story, uh, including M. Um, so I thought we'd start uh, um, by asking you just to talk a little bit about the origins of this act from a from a, a national point of view uh, the section 28 act so um, in 1986, we have Labour-led Haringey Council producing a manifesto um, that was supposed to prioritise equality of opportunity. So it's supposed to be bringing um, kind of greater recognition and, and equality amongst various groups. And this included um, a small piece on lesbian and gay rights. And a group of um, people were trying to put together something called positive images. And so this was supposed to be taken into schools and just to allow um, young people to recognise that if they had attractions to people of um, the same sex um, or if they felt a little bit different from from other people, um, that it was okay. It was supposed to be acknowledging that there were other types of relationship than the heterosexual relationship. This is something called positive images. Um, And it was supposed to help young people um, to kind of um, resist or challenge societal prejudices and and derogatory stereotypes that probably Louise will remember quite vividly. Oh, yeah. To a certain extent, you you say that this was a kind of a bit of a a backlash against uh, the way in which the family unit was perceived to be changing uh, or perceived threats to the classic nuclear family. So how this kind of came to be formed is that... So we have this positive images idea that they they, they, um, secured agreement from various schools and head teachers were supposed to kind of have this positive images. They agreed that they would do this in in their schools and this got leaked in in the summer of 1986 um, and this was leaked um, to the, the press and the government and this just kind of was... I don't know, like one of the catalysts along with um, Eric lives with Jenny and Martin that kind of just caught the public's imagination. Um, Nowadays, you kind of obviously think, well, how did that kind of lead to such a problem? Now, um, the other conditions that um, are really important is is kind of changes amongst the the heterosexual family. Um, And so you have kind of women going out to work, you have women's rights, you have more people um, divorcing. So we have kind of previous um, years, you had kind of um, what were called permissive reforms. So you had kind of divorce um, act and changes to abortion and things like this. And there was a kind of a real concern that um, the family was in crisis. Now, I've emphasized that the family isn't in crisis. It's not this, it's, it's more the fact that 
it, the Conservatives' uh, perception is that the family should be independent of state intervention. They shouldn't be dependent on welfare and hands out. Um, so it's kind of these these changes around contraception and no fault divorce. They just suddenly thought, oh, we're going to have lots of single mums raising kids. Um, and so it was this real concern that you're having these changes going to the family. And then also you're having people saying, oh, here's another way of, of doing relationships and family. And it was just this kind of all coming together at the same time. Could you talk a little bit about this book, uh, Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin? It, it was written by a Danish writer. Mm. Um, and there is this perception that Section 28 all began uh, because this book uh, was in a library in Haringey um, and it was uh, supposed to be, it was uh, allegedly categorised as, as an adult book um, by the librarians uh, and somebody put it back uh, in the wrong place in the children's section and then this got found and it was seen as promotion. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, so um, a lot of kind of popular imagination of how we have section 28 and when I was doing my research it was all about this this book and it all intents and purposes looks like a children's book it's got big colorful pictures and as you said it's written by this Danish um, writer who living in kind of um, a society where it's much more you know possible to be you know kind of with um, someone of the same sex and it's not seen as such a problem um I think um, if you look more deeply into it, I think it was supposed to be a teaching resource, so for teachers to kind of teach young people about different families. Now, from memory, there's one um, picture in in this essentially picture book that has um, er Eric and Martin, and I think they're in bed together, and I think the little girl is fully clothed, as are her dad and stepdad, and there it's it t- takes place in in a in a bedroom there's nothing at all untoward or inappropriate about it it's a normal picture of a family but it just s- sort of set people's up and you had these very kind of pro um right um moral crusaders around around the around the family so uh, it was picked up by the the national press and it was picked up and it was talked about in the the house of commons there was one particular Tory MP which uh, pushed this reform, uh, uh, this this idea. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what the uh, the actual act or that particular section or clause mm. uh, um, kind of demanded? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, the Section 28 bill, it came about as a way of responding to the specific anxiety that this heterosexual family, this very nice rosy image of the heterosexual family, was under threat from this one tiny little section in Haringey's policy, which was absolute nonsense. Um, And they thought that if we introduce this Section 28 um, legislation that would kind of essentially stop schools talking about um, non-heterosexual relationships, it would stop Labour-controlled authorities, so particular Haringey, Brent, Lambeth and Manchester, from kind of introducing alternative images. Now, the bill was drafted by Lord Holsbury and it was submitted to the House of Lords in December 1986. And then obviously you had um, David Wiltshire introducing it into the House of Commons in the very final stages of the preparation of the Local Government Act. Now, it was during the parliamentary debates about Clause 28 where we have Conservative MPs grossly distorting the actions of Labour-controlled local authorities. And this is where we get the shift from positive images policy as promoting homosexuality. So it was never about promoting, but it just got distorted, this word. Um, And you never had anybody at the time countering it and saying, hang on a minute, it's not promoting, it's, it's 
it's kind of just about representing and having the representation of, of positive images. Now, there was also nasty accusations of lesbian and gay people being given special um, treatment and the fact that they were supposedly misusing ratepayers' money by funding publications of books such as Suzanne Bosch, Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin. So this now takes us to uh, the wider, the kind of wider national picture. The the act was uh, discussed in Parliament in January and February 1988. Um, and uh, from February through to June, there were a whole series of protests that year, um, up until the point where the act uh, came into, into force. Um, on the 2nd of February, uh, three activists... Uh, uh, abseiled into the House of Lords mm. immediately <laughs> after the House of Lords passed that uh, passed that vote. But the, the very first kind of uh, public events or protests uh, was on uh, 20th of February 1988 uh, when the North West Campaign uh, for Lesbian and Gay Equality uh, organised this huge, huge demo uh, through the centre of Manchester. Uh, there were different figures uh, attached to it. Some people say 20,000, some say 25,000, uh, completely taking over the centre of Manchester. Uh, and we're really, really lucky because we have uh, Louise Walwyn here, who is one of the organisers. Now, Louise, there's a very famous picture uh, which has uh, resurfaced over the last few months because it's, a, it's 30 years ago. Uh, this year, you've got this amazing picture of all these kind of celebrities. You've got Peter Tatchell, centre stage. You've got uh, Sir Ian McKellen, Michael Cashman, uh, the, uh, the the actor from uh, EastEnders who later became a politician. You've got uh, it's kind of a who who who's who, not only of uh, kind of national LGBT activism, but also of of Manchester. And it seems this amazing kind of moment. Uh, how how the hell did you organise that? Well, um, do you want some background yes. on how I got involved? So yeah. I was I was not quite eighteen. I just got out of care a bit early because I'd come out in care and I had a really bad time, a lot of homophobia. I had a really nice social worker who almost lost a job trying to stick up for me. I was sneaking out of the children's homes, going to gay clubs the leaders of the homes would send cops to take me home. So that that was my background. And one night I was out in a club and I can't remember which one it was. It might have been the number one. And somebody stuck a leaflet in my hand that had all these little bombs on it. And it was about close 28. But the thing, the bomb that really went off in me was... Um, the bit that was talking about censorship because all I had growing up was books and what this leaflet said was it was basically that it was going to be about banning books so I went to the meeting and then the next thing went on a march in London got a bit roughed up at Downing Street because <clears throat> it kicked off a bit roughed up by cops. cops yeah that was very shocking because to me, cops used to come to our children's homes. They were friendly people. I didn't realise at the time they were there sussing out, you know, potential criminals. But, you know, they seemed like really nice people. And in that moment, I realised that actually, no, that this is really bad. So came back, spoke to the to the all the city councillors, told them what happened on this march, and then we carried on organising our own and it took us about two months 
at the time I was really young, so I was looking up to all these activists. But what they've told me recently was that it was me that was like, we've got all these leaflets, we've got to get them out. Apparently I was completely just dedicated. Um, one person called me like the lesbian shock troops. And I used to go around the village every every night, get up on a speaker, grab a mic if there was one, and tell people, this is our time, we've got to come out, there is no choice, we've got to stop hiding. We've got to we've got to do something about this. We've got and what we need is we need the whole community there. And it was quite a big thing getting the scene, the gay scene involved in, in anything political. Because, you know, we were still living in the shadows, a lot of us. I mean, I wasn't. I'd, I'd come out quite literally, I'd come out of care and, you know. And, yeah, so it was just constant going up and down, up to Scotland, down to London, going to meetings, just speaking to as many people as as possible to get them on this march and and miraculously they all turned up you know trains specially commissioned trains from london coaches from nottingham you know the play from like little places in shropshire you know like everybody that could came out on that day I know a lot of people couldn't come, the teachers, people who were working in education. You know, there was a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. On the day of the march, the fear that we felt holding that banner, being at the front of that march, walking through my streets of Manchester, we were absolutely terrified, every single one of us. The reason why we had such a big banner a big fuck off pink banner was you know if the cops charged us we'd be ready <laughs> if some people wanted to take game. us on we were ready well i was ready you can see my face in the picture you know through the, the i was ready that day you know and when we got to piccadilly there were people shouting there's that guy off eastenders there's louise walwin you know i had people recognizing me from school and it was amazing and at first you know people tried to have a go at us but that that march went on for three miles back it took hours to get into albert square to fill it up because there were so many of us and it was amazing because those people that were shouting at us shut up they weren't shouting once they saw the next thousand coming the next thousand after that and it was an incredible feeling this force of 25,000 people behind me. It was it was incredible, set me up for life. And the clause was intended to interrupt my education, but it did the ex- exact opposite. It, 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 was the, it was the cause that I'd already been to Greenham. I was already um, de- defending Virage, but there was something about this, about having to speak publicly. I, you know, I've never had to go back in to the closet the closet never existed for me so uh, tell us a little bit more about the day itself so there's the huge march wound around manchester uh do you know can you remember where it started it, it ended yeah elsewhere. we started just up the road at um at all saints park right. um and then we had this route 
that you can't take now because the way the city's been redesigned because of bombs and stuff. And so, yeah, we we went up Oxford Road, past the BBC, then turned off in up into Piccadilly, then went round past the Royal Exchange and into Albert Square. And... Um, the the guy who was like our chief steward at the front, there were two chief stewards, there was Hugh Fell at the front and Ian Wilmot at the back and they were communicating with each other um, through some secret uh, walkie-talkies given us by the council on the quiet. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah, the council, we'll talk about that in a yeah. bit. It's amazing, really, what they did. Um, and then we got into Albert Square and the police were trying to tell Hugh that there'd been a bomb threat to try and stop us filling up Albert Square. Really? Yeah. And uh, he ignored them. (laughs) There were so many moments in Albert Square, the Sheila moment, the bit where Ian McKellen was... And this scared everybody when he said this. There was a bit where in his speech that he talks about yes we must go in schools we must promote ourselves they tell us that we can't well this is what we've got to do it's incredible really Mm. and but that was frightening it was like no no don't don't you know because there was all this inbuilt stuff that we'd been told and certainly anything to do with kids everybody thinks we're a paedophile stay away from kids you know it was it was terrifying the things he had to say and, the th- and Michael Cashman very clearly just asking f- for something simple as equality Sue Johnston getting up and talking about Nazis and book burning and, and the appreciation the the miners wives doing a song the, it was fantastic and my job was to look after Ian McKellen that day nice job yeah, it was nice. I, to be honest with you, at the time, and I hope he won't mind me saying it, I didn't really know who he was. I knew who Michael Cashman was because he was on EastEnders, <laughs> but, but, you know, I certainly knew who he was. By And part of that was, so I had to take him to uh, the Free Trade Hall where, where there was this big gig, this amazing gig. And I was stood in the wings watching Ian McKellen deliver the Thomas More speech where it's actually we use that speech when we're talking about refugees at the moment it's it's an incredible speech and I don't know it was one of those moments that was unforgettable but sort of strengthened me that this is what I can do I can be up on that stage I can be you know I can be speaking I'd already written a play at that time, so I was already on my way to being a writer. Uh, before I bring Juliet in, just you, you mentioned briefly the council. Paul Fairweather has uh, wrote a, a piece in The Guardian about how he was working with the council, and the council sort of secretly kind of support this. But obviously they could be yeah. shown to be spending taxpayers' money, etc., uh, etc. Et so how, how did that work? Um, so we had an office on the roof of the town hall, which was just next door to the secret Viraj Mendes office. <laughs> There's lots of secret offices. Yeah, it was beautiful. It was right up at the top near the clock 
that was the centre of our operations, basically. I didn't realise it was all on the quiet. For me, as a young 17-year-old, all I knew was I was being given access to the council and its facilities in order to stick up for myself. Mm. To me, the council, the council at that time was still legally my parent. So for me, it, it made total sense. But when you, when you hear Graham Stringer talk about it, it is amazing what they did because they had to, all the decisions that those local politicians made, Graeme Stringer, Pat Carney, people like that, they then had to go and campaign on behalf of Labour. They bore the consequences of all the decisions that they made on the doorsteps mm -hmm. of North Manchester. They dealt with the homophobia front on. Yeah. They're amazing, really. You know, might not agree with all the politics and all the decisions and things, but it was, you know, we had a, a commemoration a couple of weeks ago and it was amazing. The council thanked us, you know, for what we did and that and for the city that we've helped create. And it was significant and amazing to hear those thanks. But also we need to thank them because it was brave, you know. It, I don't. Yeah, think. it was. It was really massive. Like they, that's they just could have been sent to, to prison. You know, they. You know, they, well, that was the thing with this kind of act is that this thing was coming through, and it was like they didn't actually prosecute anybody under this act. But that's so. That's legend. That's amazing. Yeah. So nobody may have been prosecuted, but mm. I would say when you hear the conservatives talk about clause twenty eight and. How sweet that we got an apology from David Cameron a few years ago. I do not accept your apology. I don't. It was a hideous attack. And not only that hideous attack, the consequences of it, for the next 30 years of my life, I still had to... I've, I've had my chin broke twice. I've been attacked so many times. only started reporting it maybe three years ago. You know, and that's lack of education. Most attacks come from young white men. And so it's their education that actually has been distorted and disrupted and, and affected mm. because those, they can still go out and attack because of lack of education. That was a serious law. Uh, there's so many things. I've gone and run workshops as a poet in, in special schools mm. and dealt with homophobia, you know, as, a, as an artist. And I've had apologies from teachers where they've gone, this was because of Section 28. We mm. couldn't challenge though, that language and that behaviour because of this law. Whether that law ever made it to the statute books or not, the psychological effect of it was for another 30 years. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been massive. I mean, yeah. I've got a 19-year-old and a 14-year-old, and in my, in my son's primary school, you know, we talked about this, and I said about this kind of, you know, this law, and I said... And where is the acknowledgement that, you know, there might be, you know, same-sex families? And they were like, well, we don't talk about it unless the child raises it. And I'm like, well, no child is ever going to raise it if you aren't mm -hmm. brave enough to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. So going, going back to the council, what I could see mm -hmm. was my council trying to do something for me. It's just, it's just amazing hearing your story. Like, 17-year-old. I mean, I didn't come out until I was... 
28, 29, because I was very much, I'm 38, I was very much in the closet because I lived in Somerset, you didn't come out. I knew men could be together, but not women. Yeah. It took me to come to Manchester to learn that I could be gay. It's insane. So that's the perfect moment to bring uh, you in, Juliet. You um, came to Manchester and studied, you at the university around the year, around 2000, is that right? 2000, 2003, that's right. Yeah, uh, I did um, the history degree. And it, uh, it kind of marked your uh, education, if you like, political education to a certain extent. Do you, want to, do you want to talk to us a little bit about how you became involved in uh, the campaign for the repeal? Yeah, I mean, I was never hugely involved with the campaign for the repeal. It was something I was very interested in. Um, you know, I was a primary school pupil in 1988. I was six, I think, when that law was passed. And I graduated just before the repeal in 2003, although I, bec- I only became aware of Section 28 in about 1998, 99, because it was one of the, I think it was a manifesto pledge for, you know, Tony Blair and New Labour when they got elected in 97. So it was on the cards that this would be repealed from the beginning of that administration. There were attempts to repeal and you know i grew up in a daily mail household and as you can probably imagine the daily mail were tooth and nail against uh, the repeal of section 28 um you know lots of people who are you know even part of the current tory administration including our um beloved prime minister uh, were very much against the repeal of section 28 mm-hmm. there was a lot of resistance to it uh, i lived in a very conservative part of the country and so there was certainly no activity where I was growing up in favour of repealing this law. Um, but I was very aware that it, you know, it had been a silencing piece of legislation and very aware of how that had shaped my youth. I mean, we'd had a little bit of, um, of sex education at my secondary school. And I think we had one hour on anything other than kind of like a traditional sort of heterosexual, like cisnormative family. And that was in our RE lessons when our RE teacher, Mr. Buck, came in with a video from about 1972. Um, and he sort of introduced it to us and just said, this is about two boys who, um, well, um, they're homosexual. <laughs> and he kind of rushed the word under his breath. And this kid called Bill sat at the front of the room um people made to sit at the front uh, he put his hand up and just said mr buck mr buck and he was quite relieved to have um quite relieved to have something to break up his obligations talk about this subject which he was clearly struggling with and bill just sort of said sir what's a homosexual and um the teacher just went like bright red and just told us to watch this video <laughs> Uh, and the video was absurd, you know, it was these sort of two boys who like run away from school because they're getting bullied. So they go camping together, you know, to me. And obviously, you know, there are a couple of moments uh, that directly address homophobia in the room. So there's a bit in the video where like one of the pupils, well, the pupils are listening to the teacher and the teacher's talking about homosexuality and says that I think it's one in 10 people might be gay. And one of the boys in the classroom stands up and points at people and says, is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Which, of course, then somebody in our classroom just did. Um, And, you know, the whole thing was was just a kind of farce, really. Uh, And it was only once I got to sixth form college that I found out that this law had been in place. And that was the reason why um, why we'd never really talked about sexuality at all. 
And it even spreads to other things, I think. Like in my English classes, when I was about 14 years old, we got given Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley. Uh, and I, you know, I thought this was such a great piece of literature. I couldn't kind of contain myself from saying so, even though I I knew that, you know, just admitting to liking poetry at school, you might as well just like start hitting yourself, really. <laughs> and, you know, I was like, God, this poem's amazing. And of course, got the sort of predictable like barrage of homophobic abuse for liking something as like non-blokey as a poem. Um, and the teacher just, you know, didn't do anything to stop it. Um, and I suspect that was because of something like Section 28. So, yeah, just because it, it doesn't... I've had this argument with the kind of LGB Tory crowd a bit, that um, just because something doesn't result in any prosecution doesn't mean it doesn't have an effect. So Section 28 really kind of fired me up um, as soon as I found out about it. And you have to put it into another context as well, of course, which is the HIV and AIDS crisis and the um, the political responses to that. And in particular, the um, the kind of hardline sort of conservative and some of the religious responses to it. Um, you know, you guys will all know with your connections to Manchester about James Anderson, the, um, the sort of very evangelical um, head of police during the 1980s in Manchester. And so as a teenager, I was very interested in the legacy of the HIV and AIDS crisis, which, you know, by the time I was becoming conscious of my own sort of transgender and queer sexuality, um, you know, the, the worst of the AIDS crisis was seen to be over. Uh, but you had a generation that was just ahead of mine, just very much scarred by it. And, you know, a lot of the more kind of radical artists and activists, of course, had died. And so there was a whole generation of people like that who were probably my people who who were lost you know um so that was very interesting and I was also just really really interested in Manchester and its kind of 1980s culture as a student uh well before I was a student which is kind of what drew me to Manchester you know as a as a secondary school pupil I was obsessed with Joy Division and New Order and the Smiths and I got into bands like The Fall and The Passage which was you know um several of those bands had songs about people like James Anderson. Uh, it was also very interesting, kind of Manchester's like club culture and gay culture in the 1980s. So, you know, everything around the Hacienda, but also around Canal Street. Uh, and, you know, some of the sort of like gun and crime issues as well. Uh, Manchester, you know, 1980s Manchester just kind of fascinated me. I mean, it really, you know, by far and away the most interesting city in the UK in the 80s, I think. But, um, you know, this is what drew me to Manchester in, in 2000, uh, when I was kind of, you know, everything, everything led to Manchester. I was kind of out as something, you know, I sort of knew I was kind of queer, but I didn't really quite have the vocabulary for it. And again, this is largely because of Section 28, I think. I'd had to sort of, in the absence of any formal education or any sort of even informal discussion at school of sexuality, I'd had to piece things together, largely through just staying up late and watching things on BBC Two and Channel Four. Um, because there wasn't much in the local library either, so those were my those were my ways into to this subject really. And your your, your story sort of uh, kind of is, is set in two time time periods. Uh, I, I guess the the latter time period is when when you joined. Uh, whilst you were at University of Manchester, did you uh, did you say you got involved in those uh, kind of repeal campaigns? Um, I mean. I again, I narrowly missed it really, um, because the 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 big demo in Albert Square that was designed to recall the 1988 one was, mm. I think, June 2000, so it was just before I arrived. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, people were boycotting Stagecoach uh, at that point, who ran most of the university buses, um, because Brian Suter, the owner of Stagecoach based in Glasgow, had given, I think, a million pounds to the Keep the Cause campaign. Um, so it was it was sort of it was definitely going on. Um, you know, I mean, the main effect of that was I found myself on Finland's buses a lot. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're gone now, but I think about them every day. You know, I was very aware it was going on. I sort of tried to get involved with the Gay and Lesbian Society at Manchester University and just found that, you know, for various reasons, I didn't really fit into the society itself or the sort of Canal Street kind of culture that, that was available to me at the time. Um, and again, you know, not really quite having had the language to sort of understand that I was like a trans woman rather than a gay or queer man. Um, you know, I think if I'd been been there like 10 years later, it would have all made a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I wanted the story to kind of chart a changing LGBT culture and having it cross cut between those two time periods and those two big protests against section 28 seemed like a nice way of doing it i mean it seemed like a nice way of getting all the characters back into manchester for one thing because in the story uh marina um who was living as male at the time of the first protest in 1988 in the story she's transitioned and she's like had surgery and everything and she's moved to bristol and you know she she can't help coming back to to Manchester to be involved in the second protest really feels she has to do something. Um, and that's when she meets up again with uh, Johnny, her like ex-partner uh, from the time, and the story of their relationship becomes very entwined with the story of the protests. Um, and, you know, there was, when I moved to Manchester and got kind of very interested in and wanted to explore the village and the queer culture around it, uh, you know, Queer as Folk had been on Channel 4 the previous winter, I think, and it was bringing a different clientele to the area. It was generating a sense that different people were coming. A lot of the venues in Canal Street at that point were very clearly just, like, aimed primarily at, like, straight people. Um, you know, the sort of inversion of the pink pound, really, in, yeah. in gay areas. Um, and, um, you know, they... This is, a, this is a more modern kind of more straight friendly um, kind of LG, well, not LGBT really at that point, kind of gay and lesbian venues didn't really feel like they were for me. But the 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 more kind of um, the older, more established ones with a more kind of identifiably gay or lesbian clientele didn't quite feel like they were for me either. Um, and in the story, you know, I wanted to look at how a lot of these discussions were raised, um, you know, in 1988 and again in 2000 about who activism should include. I mean, it's I've been involved in lots of different types of activism during my kind of 20s, you know, and 30s, kind of anti-fascist activism, activism around LGBT and football in particular. Let's rewind a little bit and look at exactly uh, what's What's changed between 1988 and 2000 uh, or 2003? Um, 
M, you, your research was uh, looking at the language, just kind of looked at, uh, at a really kind of microscopic level, looked at the language of the debate in 1998, in, uh, sorry, 1988, in uh, the House of Commons and the House of Lords, uh, and then the, the same debates, uh, the repeal debates in 2000, 2003. Uh, there was a huge, huge shift. Mm -hmm. The world seems to have changed. If you look at some of the old news clips of news presenters from the 80s, they're speaking in this bizarre uh, Queen's English, uh, which just feels like it's from the 19th century, uh, and you forget how much has changed. Everything has, has has changed within those those short 14 or so years. Um, for you, what do you uh, what did you kind of find in that research, and uh, how do you explain such a seismic kind of shift? Yeah, so. Um I think it's kind of helpful to kind of just contextualise why I did my project in this. So I was doing my master's at, at Bath University um, under um, Tess Ridge's supervision and I'd been looking at civil partners' everyday lives and when you're doing a full-time master's you only have like three months to write your dissertation because um, I knew I was going to go on to do doctoral research about civil partners' everyday lives. She's like, maybe take a break and do something else and so for me it was an opportunity to research a little bit more about the history um, and I knew nothing about section 28 and I fondly remember her telling me to leave her office and go and read about section 28 because you can't know about the significance of civil partnership for older people if you don't know about section 28 so that's how I kind of came to look at the parliamentary debates um, and that's why I looked at them so closely in order to do data collection to kind of itch, sort of understand how did we get to the point where we have civil partnership um, and the parliamentary debates in the 80s were really really vicious and um, I mentioned to you about um, kind of Ken Livingstone being like one of the only people that was you know kind of would speak warmly about like lesbian mothers experiences but then when we shift forward um to the parliamentary debates in sort of t uh, in the lead up to 2003 there seemed to be much more confidence around MPs feeling able to talk about people that they know people being able to kind of come out themselves um and then talking about their um people that they represent and 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 kind of the the stories are there the, this kind of visibility and it's really interesting um and what i suggested um on kind of my reading around the subject and then certainly listening to louise's amazing recollections and then also juliet's is is this kind of importance of this confidence this confidence within kind of certainly um sexual minority communities about this is enough this no more we go forward now we kind of have to fight back and just this confidence and I know that in 1989 you had organizations like Stonewall being set up and kind of um, groups having to take charge of and look after themselves in the HIV AIDS epidemic having to fight back um, you also and I've written quite extensively about um, our attitudes soften and we become more co more accepting of the fact that families are changing so I kind of talk about um, our understanding of, of kind of sexual minority identity and and allowing them to live their lives and and living our, our lives in the way that we do is very much dependent on shifts and acceptance of shifts in, in straight families um, and so we have no more this thing that to get married it's something that straight people do and it's something that has to have children and, it, and it's kind of becomes much more fluid and flexible so we have all of these changes and so it, it becomes much more possible to kind of acknowledge and allow for different kinds of families because in the straight world kind of 
those kind of changes are, are, are occurring. Culture plays a huge part. I mean, we've, we've talked about Michael Cashman and uh, his character in EastEnders, and and Juliet, you just mentioned uh, queer as folk. Do you do you feel, or uh, do you, Louise, feel that culture uh, kind of changed the conversation, or would you ascribe it to something else? I think particularly in Manchester, you know, uh, I've just gone back to that day in my mind and saw the first thing we saw when we arrived in Albert Square was a massive banner put up on the clock of the town hall by the council. And it, what was it? Lesbians and gay men out and proud, never going underground, right? Uh, we, we We had the town hall speaking as loudly as it could to say you are welcome here and and we want to build something here but at the same time in Manchester culturally that because of that march to be queer became cool mm. across the board you know like we were no matter where I went for months afterwards I'd get bought drinks you know it was cool <laughs> to be us nice. and then following that I was one of the go-go dancers at a night called Flesh at the Hacienda, which was a big gay night. And you couldn't move for straight people clamouring to want to be in our culture. Yeah. We were cool. We It had happened. You know, that shift. I don't know about anywhere else, but I don't think any other council in the country put a big banner up saying, you're welcome here, come and build something here, right? So alongside that and the music and everything, this the, there was a shift that happened and it was a shift that happened amongst young people mm. to realise that, you know, as well as fighting together, we can party together. So that's what happened. And to a certain extent, I think uh, the council was very, very favourable towards things like uh, licences being given to to Canal Street compared to other kind of parts of the city. Well, we've uh, got a bar, uh, with windows <laughs> that you could look out of and people could see you. You know, that, that significance of that, mm. all our bars, mm. like Paddy's Goose, places like that, <clears throat> they were hidden. We were yeah. in the shadows. Yeah. And then the all of a sudden, like black outdoors, and you yeah. had little shutters, and someone peering at you, Dickens. kind of checking, do you fit the norm of like, do you fit in here? There is another element of here <laughs> of working class mm. queer stories. Being mm. a butch, I'm declaring myself here. You can't see me. This is a podcast, <laughs> but just to fill you in with the picture, I'm a really handsome, nearly fifty year old butch oh, yeah. lesbian, but. Back then, for someone like me, I had to go to a place called Dickens, which was like that. Mm. It was up in the northern quarter and there was a door and there was a little slide and special knocks and all of that. (laughs) And that's where you went if you were working class or follies, you know, which was the lesbian. Wow, we got a really great lesbian, you know, but it was... so so this the kind of hacienda cool culture it's only for but, certain people isn't it yeah, yeah. but then there's the in. class yeah the working class and then all the debates at the time amongst the women was it cool to be butch no it wasn't it, you know it, it was, was kind of felt to be like a replication of straight relationships and it's so much more complicated than spent that. hours in a meeting one time being told penetration wasn't cool if you're a feminist you know it 
But it was all up for it, debate at the time. It was all kind of time. tangled up with the whole kind of like all penetrative acts or rape. So you're Andrea Dorkin and you're Catherine yes. McKinnon stuff in the 1990s, which was really controversial, yeah. so controversial. And also this idea of political lesbianism. Yeah. So, you know, if you're a good feminist, you, you should be having sex with women you shouldn't be with men yeah it was a really interesting time to be 17 and you know and I think Juliet has has got it in the book thanks for that Juliet about you know my only images were the killing of sister George do you know what Mm. I mean so there's so there's the different Mm. worlds of Manchester as well that that's really interesting and now it's all coming it feels like it's all coming round again because of the debates between uh, radical lesbian feminists and trans activists and all of that, and it's it, and it feels a bit like it was thirty years ago, to be honest. Mm-hmm. We're talking about Jermaine Greer. All of it. I I'm so shocked. I am really shocked. I only, uh, God forgive me. I only heard the word turf about <laughs> six months ago, and I googled it, and I was really shocked. And then I started seeing things on Twitter and then I've seen people attacking the lives out of each other and it reminds me of the 80s. It was all up for debate and you have all these different sections of of society and they're attacking each other rather than the people who are actually doing the harm. It's mm-hmm. interesting. So if we if we look at the broad kind of picture, in the 80s, uh, this, tell me if I'm oversimplifying or I'm just uh, straight wrong here, but in the 80s, there was a sense that lots and lots of different uh, kind of uh, political groups uh, kind of bandied together. You had you had the miners, you had black communities, you had LGBT communities, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Everybody was fighting the same cause because Thatcher was so out there. She was so uh, unashamed in her kind of uh, hostility to all of these groups. Um, that everybody was together, and then there seems to be as we as we fast forward, there seems to be a, a slight kind of uh, segmentation or disintegration of these these kind of these alliances, you know, you you see it slightly in like a film like Pride, where there's there's a certain amount of faction fighting within the LGB group, um, and there's also a sense that as the uh, the LGBT kind of cause begins to become. Uh, more mainstream, if you like, and uh, overground, it becomes less political, certainly in its in its public face. And there's a there's a moment in that film Pride where somebody says, you know, this year uh, we're not doing the political stuff anymore. We're going to downplay that. It's all it's, about love. Yeah, and it's <laughs> but it's also it's like uh, certain bits of the uh, the identity politics cake has been sort of sliced up, and and certain um, kind of causes have been responded to. Uh, at different speeds, uh, but also kind of in isolation. So you don't have this unity in the 90s going forward uh, and the noughties. Now we're we're kind of in a in a very similar position almost to kind of the early mid 80s, where again there's lots of there's uh, there's lots of hostility um, uh, to to kind of marginalised groups. There's uh, there's a, a blame culture in the media. Uh, you know, Louise, you work with refugees a lot, and uh, there's 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 othering going on. Yeah. Uh, do you feel like we're back in the eighties to a certain extent? Yeah, I do. If I could have a message from the eighties, <clears throat> what we did. So, the Northwest Campaign Office was next door to the Virage Mendes office. 
you want to talk a little bit about Firage? Man? Yeah, Firage was um, is a man from Sri Lanka, from the Sinhala community, who supported the Tamil cause. And he came over here as a student, overstayed his visa. Uh, the reason he overstayed was he became more politicised and um, found out more about the Tamil cause and he was seen as a traitor so we couldn't go back to Sri Lanka <clears throat> at the time that and he that, was a communist as well oh yeah he was a revolutionary communist and so um, to fight his deportation there was a community sanctuary set up in Hume in the Church of the Ascension and it was a radical act at the time uh, <laughs> the priest at the time uh, Father John Methuen overcame a lot of things within himself to open the doors of the church and give Viraj uh, sanctuary. He was in community sanctuary for a thousand days. Uh, we fought as hard as we could to stop him being deported. And um, unfortunately, 500 cops came one night and raided the church. Uh, the first time that a church that sanctuary has been broken since Henry VIII times and uh, they wanted him out he was too much trouble it had been a massive cause we were quite a, a vibrant campaign again it was a broad church campaign and so so that broad church meant that uh, everybody anybody who supported the cause could be part of it I, as a young working class lesbian, they saw me come in and thought, right, get her in quick. And I became a member of the committee. I used to stay, um, I was in and out of homelessness at the time. So I used to do a lot of the overnight shifts in the church. I used to sleep under the organ and Viraj had a room next door and we were protecting him and we were defending him because he was under threat. Uh, we all know, well, you should know how Sri Lanka played out eventually. Uh, so it even the Queen was sending messages. That it was made known that even the Queen was praying for him. Hmm. But they wanted rid of Viraj because if his case had have won and a community would have been shown to have been successful in providing sanctuary and all of that, it would have opened the their floodgates, according to the Tories. So they wanted him out. The press went for him. Everything. It was, it was, it was the most. I, you know, it, yeah. The when, yeah, there was a lot of paranoia. It was, it was a t tough, tough time. A lot of strange things happening. Um, a poet called Sonia was actually Sonia Hughes was actually sent to prison. The only person from the campaign. You know, it was, it, it, but this thing about it being an injury to one is an injury to all. So, so I'm fighting Margaret Thatcher about Clause 28. Viraj is fighting Margaret Thatcher because he wants to live. There, there, there is the common mm. enemy. We're all fighting. So it was amazing. It was amazing for a young me because it, it furthered my education. Also, I was surrounded by, like in the Clause 28 campaign, <clears throat> loads of middle-class people who were all students and stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and so they raised my aspirations. 
you know, massively in, in terms of... And also the way they treated me as a young working class, very stroppy, you know... I was so stupid. I got banned from the Houses of Parliament for eight years. The the night. <laughs> what did you do, Louise? Well, the night they took Virage. <laughs> the day they took the morning they took Virage. They took him down the motorway really quick, put him in Pentonville Prison for the night. Somebody at that that picket. So I went. I followed. Um, and at the picket outside the prison, somebody said Douglas Heard was speaking at the Houses of Parliament. So jumped on the tube and uh, thought I'd give him what for and so I was about to give him what for when the sergeant at arms the the really these old fellas in the houses of parliament the proper rough uh stopped me from giving Douglas Heard the entirety of what for and uh told me and then handed me over to the cops and the cops told me I was banned for eight years and uh, so that was that and then the next day when the plane was uh, about to take off, I tried to get on the runway at Gatwick Airport <laughs> and the police broke my arm. Um, and then that night, um, we had a big demonstration in Hume and Tony Benn <coughs> spoke for us, spoke for me, spoke for me in Parliament. And that was that. Was that. And it was, it was, it's very, painful you know because again we didn't win yeah, yeah and for me as a young activist it was like everything i'm involved in green and common close 28 anti-deportations we, we're not winning but you know but the the kind of debate was one i mean greenham is now uh a pleasant land where they used to shoot Star Wars. Uh, see, when you're 17 you don't see that yeah. you don't you don't see that history will prove you right yeah uh, and that things will change. You you're living in the moment of it. Yeah, yeah. And and you know I I didn't have a job for ten years. Do you know what I mean? The eighties were tough. Yeah. They were tough to be working class. Never mind queer or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, or political. Yeah. You know, and also it was great and everything. It seemed like there were lots of people, but when all those things calmed down, there wasn't there wasn't the the you know, people started partying and getting on with their lives and getting jobs and buying houses and, yeah, interesting. So, to go back to kind of this 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 kind of maybe simplified idea that maybe some of the ingredients, some of the social conditions are, are repeating themselves at the moment. What do they you, are. <laughs> talk, talk to me a little bit about that and uh, Julia and Em jump in. Uh, it, do, do you feel that there is this kind of a polarization uh, happening uh, between the two narratives. Uh, uh, M, you talked uh, about the way that language changes and, and politicians are able to kind of speak warmly and openly across the board about uh, sexuality now. But if you actually look at the media, I think the media is 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 very isolated. It kind of repeats itself. It's very at one end of the uh, the spectrum, and it's not really a broad church. But the the general discourse is kind of going the other way. Would you would you guys agree with that? I was thinking about kind of you had Labour come in, so the Labour government of ninety seven brought a lot of this equality stuff. So you say about certain kind of um, causes were kind of answered, or certain aspects of the community's needs were addressed in in various measures that that um, Labour tried to bring in, but um, obviously kind of certain things are dealt with, but then other other things aren't, and it's kind of this 
you're right. This kind of, you know, we're in, certainly from, like, if we think about the recession, and there's a lot of kind of misery, and there's lots of, but there's a lot of scapegoating, rather than the yeah. people who need to be taken to task for all of the damage that they've done. We're not, we're infighting, and that's kind of why you get the same groups. Obviously, kind of the narrative or the, the outer appearance looks different, but it comes down to the same things. The same groups are scapegoated. You've got kind of real national resentment and populism kind of taking hold. You've got social media, so you don't have just you know newspapers with their certain views you've got social media you've got fake news you've got people like donald trump at the time and i'm not owning up to it but uh people went out and on one night i think it was the night the clause was passed went out and covered every conservative party club in the greater manchester area of which i think there were 74 in these black and white photocopies of the Pastor Nine Muller poem, first they came for the mm-hmm. trade unionists. I didn't speak out because it wasn't, you know, that. And and then they came for me and there was no one left to speak out for me. So that kind of set me up and set us up at the time as a movement. And what we were saying is they're coming for us now, but they're coming for you next. Mm. And this particularly with regards to immigration. This is something I've been saying for a very long time. They're going to come for you. They're going to come for you next. You know, this is why it's important to... To fight now, to fight today. Yeah, Yeah, for each other or fight for somebody that you don't... that isn't like you. Mm. So I really admire the lesbians and gays support the migrants because they get it. Mm. They get this thing of... we we cannot relate to each other on one level the but what we can relate to each other is that this this government is coming is coming for us is coming for you we've got a, so uh disabled people mm. i want to see gays empty in the clubs in the, with no tops on you know with all the fancy money and pink pound and i want them to see them sticking up for disabled people who are literally dying because of this government's policies yeah. you know you know they've so got so many a- cuts have just kind of ruined people's lives just so much vulnerable marginalized people and they're the ones being blamed you have the food banks and things like this and you've got government um conservative politicians saying they're there with their big tvs and they're buying drugs and all that bollocks and you've got mm. nurses going to food banks because they can't afford food they can't afford to keep food on their tables because of all the damage that this government has done yeah. but to go back to the lgb kind of uh community in the debate you mm-hmm. we were talking a little bit about how there's there's uh there's been a lot of uh faction fighting recently over over Jermaine Greer and uh the trans issues do you think that's been uh over hyped or do you think that's a that's a real problem uh Juliet yeah I mean I, I don't know what to say I'm kind of I'm exhausted with it um essentially it's, if you want me to simplify I think uh, correct me if I'm wrong uh Jermaine Greer claimed that trans women are not real women oh we're talking uh, specifically about Jermaine Greer but I mean, but then no, the f- this, but then what's happened after that um this argument has been going on for like 50 years or yeah. so I and mean, you can trace it back to post-war second wave feminist movements mostly in the US and what was kind of happening was that you know a sort of a main tactic of second wave feminism 
was to set up like women only spaces mm. and contemporaneously with that late 60s early 70s you have this sort of emergence of particularly transsexual women moving from you know kind of isolated instances like christine jorgensen who was um extensively covered in the global media in the early 50s you have to sort of this this movement from this idea of like transsexual women as isolated kind of one-offs to a kind of a transsexual community and there are a tiny handful i think carol riddell in her article on it in 1980 puts the number at 12 in the us and two in the uk tiny handful of transsexual women who want to become involved with like women only uh, spaces organizing and then you know kind of in historical context understandably you know there's a discussion about whether or not you know transsexual women you know at this point qualify for entry into women-only spaces and as is often the case with these things like the loudest and nastiest voices win out even if they're not that numerous um which was sort of largely the case you know what it comes down to is like uh policing of the boundaries of the category of woman and this idea that like trans people in whatever form their identities are kind of expressed at that point like the idea that trans people are going to like destroy that category possibly kind of mendaciously um and lots of kind of anxieties about that and you know often arguments um that you know are sort of presented as irresolvable and irretractable and aren't necessarily i mean you know a lot of a lot of issues around kind of reproductive rights and abortion and you know trans people's kind of access to hormones and surgery come down to bodily autonomy for example but um there is still a sort of a a very vocal minority um of kind of like anti-trans feminists um who are kind of disproportionately represented in the media i would say uh because i don't really come across them a lot in more kind of grassroots sort of like feminist or socialist act um organizing how do we redress this disproportionate coverage I mean, I have two just pet topics at the moment, which are the Labour Party and the media. And these two things are related. Um, so just as kind of like transphobic feminism is overrepresented in the media, I think, um, because a lot of our kind of like media editors now, people who commission are people who came through kind of feminist um, organising in the 80s and 90s when the anti-trans position was a lot stronger mm-hmm. uh, on a grassroots level um and you know they're the ones now who are choosing who gets to make up our kind of mainstream media discourse and as a lot of trans kind of writers and activists have broken into that mainstream media discourse over the last decade or so um there's been quite a lot of you know seemingly quite coordinated resistance uh which you know often kind of you know takes the kind of mantle of like free speech which is often the demand for free speech to speak kind of completely unopposed or unchallenged um and you know this this is a tactic the sort of the right have been using quite a lot to say well look you know we just want to air our legitimate concerns about immigration it's very similar sort of tactics similar rhetoric um and quite often both the mainstream media and kind of liberal media um and the kind of right wing of the labor party and the sort of post blairite kind of centrists um have been willing to you know accommodate that pushing of the political discourse to the right um and i mean what you're seeing now is a kind of reaction against 
a kind of Blairite approach to kind of um, LGBT issues, I think, because, you know, as I said uh, earlier, like, I think the Blair government were comparatively good on LGBT issues. Um, but, you know, the sort of the, the kind of the class solidarity and the sort of cross, you know, the cross community solidarity that Louise has been talking about, like that was very consciously and very deliberately taken out of the Labour Party in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, and of course, we're seeing it return now. And, um, you know, since the um, ascent of Jeremy Corbyn to the Labour leadership, you're seeing, you know, an idea of like building these issues around like benefit cuts and austerity, around immigration, around like LGBT rights, you know, building that upon a kind of holistic approach to kind of like left organizing and activism with an awareness that actually effective um political movements need a movement behind them um you know like a lot of people who are more loyal to the blair government would tell you that just everything is about getting in power and it was only when the government were in power that they could put through legislation like repealing section 28 or the gender recognition act of 2004 and i would agree that power is important it would be you know ridiculous to argue otherwise but these cultural changes that allowed those um those decisions to be taken and those votes to be won in parliament uh were only really possible with the long-term uh work of um of, of activists i mean yeah you know as we said earlier like the repeal of section 28 in 2003 would not have been possible without the demonstration in albert square in february 1988 you know these things are these things are very long term I was just going to quickly kind of uh, broaden the conversation out into into kind of international uh, concerns over this issue uh, and uh, over kind of LGBT rights uh, and the, the wider kind of global picture. Obviously, there's been a lot of discussion uh, over the last few years about uh, LGBT rights in uh, in Russia, in particular, and infringements and uh, like a Russian equivalent to this this uh, section 28 in in russian law um and obviously uh elsewhere in the world in, in more kind of religiously uh, conservative uh countries and i was just going to ask about to what extent uh, people feel that the the kind of act the impetus is to engage with those debates and those those communities and those uh, uh kind of activists uh, actions uh internationally or or is the the kind of impetus to to fight locally uh, across various uh, kind of issues and themes? Yeah, um, I mean, I've tried as much as I can to do both. Mm. Um, I mean, one of the, I think one of the reasons why like the idea of like a Corbyn-led Labour Party appealed to so many people who've been involved with different types of activism in the UK is because there was this sort of sense that actually a lot of our concerns across various different fields to do with yeah like disability austerity racism anti-immigrant sentiment lgbt issues etc would be taken up by leadership and we wouldn't have to exhaust ourselves quite so much by constantly trying to fight across these different um issues um you know because it really is like a full-time job um so, you know, one reason for me to support that project, despite a lot of the historical baggage of the Labour Party, is is for that reason. I mean, I have been doing a lot of work in kind of post-communist and post-Soviet countries over the last few years. 
Ukraine, Serbia, Croatia, Slovenia, um, and particularly Kyrgyzstan, uh, which was adopting a copy of the Russian propaganda laws in 2014. Uh, and that law never passed, actually. It got kind of stuck in the parliament um, and didn't go through. Uh, but, I mean, the thing that made me the most angry, I think, when I went to Bishkek and spoke to some LGBT activists was that when the Kyrgyz government were arguing for this piece of legislation, they said, yeah, like, Russia has this law and the law was copied pretty much directly from from, from the Putin government. But they said Britain also has this law and they were pretending that Section 28 was still in force. So, you know, Section 28 was like screwing over the Kyrgyz LGBT community more than 10 years after it was repealed in Britain, which um, which I found pretty astonishing, really. And I, I you know, I tried to to build some solidarity with like LGBT organisations in the UK by using that point as, you know, just like a point of outrage and a point for people to come into this story, even if they didn't know an awful lot about like post-Soviet Kyrgyzstan, because, you know, I didn't know an awful lot before I went. Uh, and I wasn't really able to do that. Um, so, I mean, in terms of like both these different approaches to activism, um, certainly I do what I can um, and if one approach doesn't work, then try the other and then go back to the first one again. So um, following on from that, mm. that amazing point, uh, it's it's funny because it kind of ties in the fact that at Kyrgyzstan they, they think it's it's still, still it a law. Yeah. It did get repealed quite quietly. Yes. Um, and you've got a theory about that. Yes. Yeah, it is speculative. Um, but when I was doing my research, it involved looking at parliamentary debates and it also involved looking at um, newspaper accounts. So kind of doing like a big look at different stories. Um, and the 2000 um, at attempt at repeal, there was lots of protest around it. And then... Um, and it failed because... It, it failed for various reasons because there was kind of still a lot of attention on, on, on it. Um, Juliet mentioned the stagecoach chap who kind of like put a lot of investment into this. Now in 2003, I noticed it was very little coverage. So in terms of like the 1980s, there were tons of stories, tons of stories in terms of um, newspaper accounts of like how we should kind of, you know, it's the right thing to do. It's, it's kind of, it's going to be beneficial in these different ways. And then in 2003, there's like virtually nothing in terms of the stories in the press is virtually nothing and all that's in the press at that time is the iraq war and these supposed weapons of mass destruction that we know didn't you know exist. kind of didn't didn't exist yeah so i kind of suspect that the reason why it got through it slipped through was that being one of the reasons but then the other thing is that you have this nonsensical um legislation on the books and then you have the year before you had kind of children the children adoption act that allowed um, same-sex couples to adopt kids but then you've still got this kind of legislation in force that says these relationships are pretend so that they don't make sense and at the same time that you've got um, the these kind of this legislation on the books they're also talking about allowing civil partnership to come in which came in the year after so it's kind of this it slips through quietly but we've also reached a point where it's kind of much more um, it's much more I'm 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 can't get my word I can't get my words out to say accepted is not accepted it's tolerated we're tolerated we've always been tolerated um and so, some of us are are more tolerated than others you know if you don't if your face don't fit if your accent don't fit you know I think the work that we did around clause 28 mm. made us <clears throat> quite a visible voting block mm. 
And also when it was realised that, you know, gay men have more disposable income, this notion of the pink pound. You know, mm. we, we became a resource, didn't we? We became a voting block. We became, we made ourselves known politically in 1988. If we've won one thing, we won that, really. Mm. You know, because I really think that government didn't well, well, expect lot, what we gave them no well a lot of you as well um i read kind of actually went into politics so you kind of you did your activism and your grassroots stuff and then you guys seem to to kind of influence at local political levels so there's a lot of activists kind of turning to and entering the late you know the labor party in order and working their way up in order to actually make change well, there's this idea of a gay community as well. <laughs> but at that time, what those activists, the activists I personally know, mm. um, went on to set up like the Albert Kennedy Trust, uh, Stonewall, you know, uh, Ian McKellen went into Downing Street and we were all like, no, don't go, Sir Ian, don't go. We want to say then. But, it, but, you know, because it was a bit like, don't talk to them, don't talk to them Tories, you know, but we're glad that he did because yeah. look what happened, you know. It's that visibility that's really prominent and that's kind of, it's that fighting spirit that that comes through. And, and this protest is like legendary for that, if nothing else. It's that... It's that resolve to fight and people actually finding their voice and putting their voice out there that's really important. We went from a community that could... I don't know if you've ever read Stone Butch Blues. It's one of my favourite books. Yeah, you know, we went from that landscape where, you know, someone like me in 60s America could mm. just be in a bar and the police could raid it and they could rape me and get the, and the police could get away with it because they would want to show me how to be a proper woman. You know, by the time 1988 came and we stood up for ourselves, and also I think lesbians really came into our own mm. in that campaign, we abseiled. We, you <laughs> yeah. know, uh, the amount of times I got arrested, you the, know, the, stopping the, the traffic. The, the timing of kind of going onto that news programme where you kind of chained themselves to one of the presenters you know was legendary it was on tv yeah. it yeah. kind of made that you know it made that known so yeah so all i think my point about that is that we'd made ourselves known and that if you were a politician you would go there's a voting block how yeah. are we gonna tease them them and then that's how you get all your gay tories you know being able to be out and gay in the <laughs> tory party my god yeah but it's coming back round the other way now them gay Tories need a talking to, don't they? They they need to. They, it's them we need to be. Well, it's it's kind of that. It's if you have the resources, if you are in a position where you have privilege and and power, and you can access those resources, then you're going to be fine, and mm. your voices are going to be heard. But if you're working class or you live in the sticks you know, and you don't have access to representation, you don't know these things mm. exist for you, you don't feel you're welcome. If you don't fit the bill, you don't feel you're welcome, and that's still the problem. Mm. It's still very much, and one of the key problems we have in, in the community is you have to have money, you know, in order to kind of access Canal Street, is you have to have money. For lesbians, it is slightly different. We are still viewed differently. We're separate from gay men, do you know what I mean? in a lot of ways economic blah 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 spaces all of that but still we need to be allies 
to the to the trans absolutely well the trans community is is kind of it needs that voice it needs that level of attention that that the gay rights have got and kind of it 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 hasn't got it needs that currency in order for it to be supported because we need to remember it was in the 50s and 60s that it was us being put in mental institutions Mm. that being a lesbian would have had you marked with having a mental health condition Mm. you know if you got in the wrong hands and that so we need to remember that because that's the situation that the trans community is still in it's still seen as a mental health issue you know and having to have a certificate in order you know and kind of jumping through certain certain loopholes i mean i I kind of do i try and do my bit by you know kind of teaching about these these issues that you know in a university setting um and i work in stoke which is kind of quite a you know a, a deprived you know, uh, you know, underprivileged area, and so I, my aim is to try and empower people and, and show them the spectrum of these issues and what still needs fighting for. Mm. And for most of us, we're living in this era of equality where we don't feel the need, most of us, to censor our sexuality. There are other countries and other communities that don't have that luxury, and there's two that I w- just briefly want to mention. So you've got Russia and you've got Poland. Um, now, Russia in June 2013, their parliament passed an act that was designed for the purpose of protecting children for informal advocating for a denial of traditional family values. Basically, in, in popular um, terms, that's the gay propaganda law. It's almost identical to the Section 28 law. Um, now, since the passing of, of um, this act, you, you've seen certain newspaper um um, places and kind of documentaries being made about um, the experiences, the very kind of high profile experiences, so Chechnya um, concentration camps um, Liz McKeon's um, Hunted, Gay and Afraid in 2014 so you kind of see the, this passing of this law and then these people being terrorised and it's almost like open field day you know, where you can kind of just go out and start attacking people because they look a certain way etc. Um You've got almost this backlash in certain Eastern Bloc countries where you've got people kind of espousing traditional family family laws and the need to um, kind of live a certain um, life. Yeah, so you kind of have these kind of very high-profile stories of, of Russia, but what's kind of less talked about, um, and, and I know this kind of um, from the studies I've read, is there are certain kind of Russian academics that come to the UK in order to kind of access that that ordinariness that that most of us have, and they bring forward their stories of of kind of the certain gay spaces, and they don't have the same visibility. So there's you know certain benches in in kind of the more um, bigger cities that they they will use to kind of um, let people know that they're gay, and then they go to clubs, but you don't advertise it because there's this risk of of, of kind of um, being raided. Um, was that was that, did it become kind of more accepted and tolerated, uh, and then it regressed, or what? What's happened in Russia between like? I, I don't know kind of things in in lots and lots of depth, but I know that supposedly um, communist parties were supposed to be quite supportive, and they were allies to um, kind of you know gay rights people in Britain. Now I know also. Um, there was quite famous um, profile of, of Peter Tatchell going out to Russia and trying to do a pride march um, and getting shit kicked out of him. He was beaten up. It was kind of all his, his, you know, very brave man. But 
went over and international gay rights activists went over into cities and tried to put on a, a pride march but actual LGBT people in Russia didn't want that level of visibility because it's not safe um, and something we need to be cautious of is is kind of imposing our lens yep. and our way of life onto other people I'm so glad I don't live in Russia. I will never visit Russia because I won't be welcome there and I wouldn't put myself at risk. But it's it's recognising that despite there being these kind of really draconian laws, people are still finding ways in which to find each other. And I'm so lucky um, to live in, in the UK and be with my partner and have my kids, you know, and not risk losing them. And if we were in the 80s, I would have lost my kids by being gay these are kind of very similar parallels to kind of the stories that sexual minorities were telling in the 1990s and they're happening kind of, you know, in, in 2018 over in these countries. It, seemed, it seems to me, I remembered um, while you were talking there I'm about, <clears throat> I think I read it in uh, the story of Harvey Milk and there was something to do with cause beer and so the gays boycotted it. Mm. I can't remember what it was, what the details were, but it was a massive thing. And a bit like we didn't eat South African produce in the 80s. Um, I think this is where the international gay community, you know, if, if people don't want pride marches and don't want all of mm. those things happening, then what we have to do as an international community is find the economic ways that we yeah. can make it known to those powers in Russia, Chechnya, whatever. It's not you okay. Know, so yeah. a brand of vodka and you find that brand of vodka and you go, right, not we're banning it, it from <laughs> yeah. every gay bar. Yeah. You know, we're not just not going to buy it, we're banning it. And, you know, and that's that's what you do. That's where my natural try and hit them in the pocket because that does eventually They work. listen to that, yeah. You know, yeah. nobody had a Barclays bank account for years because of South yeah. Africa. And the, the poet me, I'm writing a play for National Theatre of Wales at the moment mm. and it's about migration. So one of my characters is a young man. He's been caught out in Chechnya and he has to make his way out and and you know and doing the research on that the way people even when they leave those countries if they manage to get out the kind of lives in shadows that they have to lead mm. so then as a community we go how can we provide sanctuary how how can we stand up and voice these things how can you know what can we be doing here you know, it's it's what can we be doing as artists as well as activists? I think you know, it's also kind of people have different kind of um, <clears throat> characteristics. So for me, kind of my gob is my best asset. I'm not brave enough to go to places I'm not welcome, but I'll make sure I champion stories that I hear. And for me, stories is the most powerful way of yeah. kind of communicating and capturing people's imagination about the atrocities that people go through and just the hardships people live and also the triumphs and the kind of the small wins that's for me kind of my best contribution I make we must continue to be active we must we must not assume just because we've had some wins 
that those laws you see as soon as a law can be passed it can be changed again you know laws change all the time it will go the other way for the gay community here it will if if we continue to be depolitic as depoliticized as we are then it's not going to be long before that lovely gay marriage all of that those adoption rights they'll be taking your kids off you but it won't be long you know the if 60,000 people who had every right to be here the Windrush generation can be told that they can leave now you know it won't be long before it's us remember that poem remember that Pastor Nymuller poem because it's true they will come for us again this is this is what I said at the end of my master's research was we cannot be complacent. We have mm-hmm. to keep fighting and, and they can overturn this. They can kind of, you know, remove this protection and, and rights that we have. You know, we aren't accepted, we're tolerated and we have to be mindful of that. In terms of what I would recommend, um, and I said it in the piece that I wrote, it's the importance of telling stories and, and over the last half century, people, activists, poets, sociologists, criminologists, a whole spectrum of like, (laughs) you know, academics and people have given their voice, they've written stories, Radcliffe Hall, um, Stone Butch Blues was written, you know, um, singers, kind of singing, making songs, protest songs, it's so important for kind of creating change. And it, for me, it remains a vital tool storytelling for disrupting that, that kind of complacent heteronormative thinking and creating kind of more awareness about people's lives. And this is what we need to do for the trans community. On a personal note, for anybody out there who might be really in their closet or whatever, don't hide. You, the, the moment people stopped beating me up in the streets is the moment when I read this quote from a drag queen and it was, if somebody attacks you for the way you look, then do it more. And the moment I took that advice on, the le- you know, and started wearing really fancy suits and things and, you know, being exactly who I am in this world, cutting my hair, not trying to be heterosexual or hide as heterosexual or whatever, it, it's amazing. It's the liberation that comes with that because when people look at you and see you who you are and you're happy with that then they they don't attack you it's it's miraculous thank you for listening tune in next month when we'll be discussing Enoch Powell's infamous speech Rivers of Blood in conversation with writer David Constantine and historian Professor Stephen Constantine.